Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. He's been in the U.S. Navy for 36 years and now commands Subbase New London. We sat down with Captain Kenneth Curtin as he celebrates six months in charge of one of the largest submarine bases in the world. And we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Every three to four years, a new commander takes charge of Subbase New London in Groton, one of the largest submarine bases in the world. And six months ago, Captain Kenneth Curtin became the 53rd commanding officer of the base in the midst of the ongoing COVID pandemic. I sat down with him recently to see how things are shaping up for him and the base and the challenges that still lay ahead. Captain Curtin, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, and thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. It's always great to catch up with the commanding officers here. It's six months now since you have been in place. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, obviously, in a moment. Tell us a little bit about your history. You know, what got you into the Navy? So when I was finishing up high school, I had some opportunities to go to college. But my family, being a middle-class working family, did not quite have the resources to go to college. So working with my parents, looked at some options, and uh, my dad having served in the Air Force previously, gave me some great fatherly advice, and I decided to join the Navy. There was lots of education opportunities. My, my job when I joined the Navy was going to be an advanced electronics field on submarines, which afforded me about a year and a half of school and training and the ability to save money to go to college at a later date. So that's really what drove me into the, the military, to not able to afford college on my own and the ability to get some training and, and serve my country at the same time, follow my dad's footsteps. You are a native New Yorker from Yonkers. You joined the Navy in 1980 and you spent the first nine years of that service in the enlisted ranks and also at Naval Submarine School. Then, obviously, later on, you were accepted into the enlisted commissioning program. Why did it take so long? Was it just a personal choice? I mean, did you want to get to see whether or not you really liked the Navy? I mean, just talk to us about that. So, actually, nine years is, is not a very long time in order to transition from an enlisted career to an officer career. That consists of some initial training, one sea tour, four years on a submarine, and then three years up here at Naval Submarine School. And that's about right. You usually want to finish your first sea tour and before you're a viable candidate because you have to pr- kind of prove yourself and prove that you're, that you're officer material. So it, that really nine years is, is not that, that long in order to then apply and accept into the officer program. You've been here at this naval base for a considerable length of time, which makes you a little bit different than some of the other commanding officers because often they've not spent maybe as much time and maybe they're coming from somewhere else. Does it give you a different perspective because you've seen probably all sides of, of this naval base, not just, you know, behind that's like magic curtain, as it were? It absolutely does, and, and And having that enlisted time, the nine years you talked about, 
I think has helped me as an officer throughout my career, having seen both sides of the playing field, if you will. And so my first time on this base was back in 1986. I walked on this base for the very first time as a unqualified E4. And then I've been on this base on and off ever since then. Out of my 36 years, I've probably spent close to 20 years on this base. Everything from a brand new sailor joining the Navy to now having the opportunity to be the commanding officer and take this base into the forward and continue doing the great things we do here. So, so I do feel that I've had an opportunity to see this base and everything this base has to offer from multiple views, and that helps me in making decisions today on how I want to handle things and where I want to go with the base. In the day and age that we live in now with so many people, you know, it's like careers are so much shorter these days and you move on to different jobs. It's clearly a little bit different in the military. You can't just decide to wake up one morning and decide, oh, that's it. I mean, obviously, you know, there are ramifications for that type of thing if it does happen. But, you know, what gets you up in the morning still after all these years? You know, what challenges you? What keeps you going in this type of job? Because clearly you're very passionate about it. You've done it for many, many years. It is the people I get to come to work with every single day to execute the nation's mission. Right? We have an extremely important mission here at the submarine base to, to deploy submarines to do the nation's bidding around the globe, all oceans, all seas around the globe, the submarines from this base go to. And then we are also training the next cadre of submariners up the hill. All the new students, all the new sailors coming into the Navy are being trained here. So that is an extremely important mission. And the group of sailors and civilians that work at submarine base here are top-notch and my ability to come in and work with them every single day to accomplish those two extremely important missions is what drives me every day. And, you know, when this opportunity sort of like came up, is it something that you actually apply for or is it something that you're headhunted for? Because I think listeners would be interested to know how that actually happens. It's kind of a little bit of both, I guess you could say, right? So uh, as you transition in the career and you meet certain milestones, you qualify for the next level of position, the next command. So you get selected. This is called a major command in the Navy. And so once I got selected for that, then they asked me, they give me a list of choices and I get to rank them in an order of priority of what I would like. And then it goes through a big process down in DC and Tennessee and they come back and tell you where you're going. So I have some say into it and it's based on my career, my qualifications, my performance up to this point. And then where the needs of the Navy are, where do they need a sailor that has my credentials, my background, my expertise, where do they need that person at that time? And then that's where they send us to go. You are effectively the mayor of a small town. I mean, this is 680 acres. That's a huge amount of land, obviously a lot of buildings, a lot of people. What's it actually like being effectively, as I say, the equivalent of a mayor? It's very challenging, but I have a great team that does the majority of the work for me and briefs me and keeps me informed and allows me to make the decisions on where we need to go with the base. But, you know, up to this point in my career, I've I've served on submarines and at the pointy end of the spear, if you will, warfighting machines. And now at this point, I'm in charge of an entire base, and it is like being a mayor. Things like the police department, the fire department, the public works, the roads, all that stuff didn't have much exposure before I got into this job. So there's a, there's a short training pipeline they send us through to get some exposure to and how it all works. And then we come in and we have to work and trust our leadership, our department heads that work for us, trust their expertise. Because some of the civilians here have been doing this job for 25 years. So I have to trust their expertise and their recommendations to me on, on how we go forward. So in a way, without oversimplifying it, is it uh, obviously in a much grander level, is it that much different than being in command of, say, a submarine? Because as a commander of a submarine, surely it's, it's a similar sort of situation, but much scaled down, that you're expecting heads of department to do their job to make sure they know what they do. So am I on the right track? Yeah, there? You absolutely are. I, I like to say leading people is leading people, whether I'm leading people on a submarine 
where I'm leading people here at Naval Submarine Base. It's, it's how you work with people, how you lead people to get the mission done, whatever that mission is defined as at that point. Being here now, and you'll be here for a few years, obviously, as the, the commanding officer, how much do you miss actually being on a submarine? Absolutely, I do miss it, but I have been doing it for so long now, and I have reached a pinnacle of that. I was in command of a ballistic missile submarine in Kings Bay back in 2015 and 2016. I've reached that, and now it's time to let the younger generation, the next cadre of submarine sailors, continue on, where I can provide this and still affect and still ensure we're getting the job done. So I do miss it, absolutely, but all things move on. Now, of course, as you took over command of Naval Submarine Base New London, we are still, all of us, battling with COVID-19. What sort of challenges did that raise for you as the new commanding officer? There's definitely some challenges, right? Because when I first took over, we were still doing a lot of teleworking, still doing a lot of our meetings via VTC and telephone calls. So as a new person coming into an installation this large, I have 650 people that work directly for me on the base, for the sub, for sub base. And so a lot of my getting ready to take over, I had not met a lot of them in person. It was all via telephone and conferencing. So, you know, that was part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge is trying to continue our mission, right? Yes, COVID affected us, and we had to kind of shut down the base. We had to kind of cordon us off early on. A lot of our sailors couldn't leave the base if they lived on base. And all that was for the purpose of ensuring we do not miss a beat with our primary mission that I already talked about. We have to get those submarines out to sea, and I have to train those sailors. And and we didn't miss. Over the entire course of COVID, this submarine base did not miss a single deployed date. We deployed every deploy, eight of them, on time where they needed to go to support the country's missions. And we continue to operate every single classroom in the schoolhouse up there and continue to supply sailors to to the fleet. So... It's challenging, but we were able to fight our way through it. And while COVID is maybe on the downward side right now, who knows what two months, three months from now will be like. But we are slowly relaxing our restrictions. We have reopened all of our fitness facilities. We've opened ourselves back up to the public. And we are starting to venture outside as well and going to more events at the local schools. It's nice to be able to get back out and interact with our community because we need our community in order to support us. So many of our sailors are out that we live in the community and their families work in the community, go to school in the community. So it is really important for us to get back out in the community and be that vibrant partner with the communities up here. I'm guessing it must have been quite lonely for many people, possibly for yourself as well, because like you said, um, during the height of COVID, many sailors weren't allowed to leave the base. They couldn't go home, you know, to go and visit parents, etc. That must have been tough for everybody. It, it was, but I think we, we did some things on the base to help alleviate that, especially for the, the junior sailors. So, so the sailors that are married and live down Downtown, they were allowed to go home. There were some restrictions, like they had to go home and come back. They couldn't go out to restaurants and stuff. The ones that were really struggled, as you say, with maybe some loneliness and not being able to get out, are those young sailors that are new here. And so we did some things like the fitness center. While it was closed, the base population in general, we were able to open it up at certain times for for those sub-school sailors who were stuck on base. Same thing with the movie theater. While our movie theater was closed for the general public and the base population, we were able to open that up just for the submarine school. So we did some things to continue some sense of normalcy so they weren't just, you know, locked on the base. Then there was the vaccinations as well. I mean, you had so many people that you had to vaccinate. Just talk us through that because that was a collaborative effort, which you succeeded. Of course, the Navy always does. You succeeded very well, but it was a partnership. It was a partnership with local municipalities as well as the Connecticut National Guard. 
and we were able to vaccinate over a thousand sailors a day when the Connecticut National Guard came on and we got together with my clinic, my medical personnel, and we were able to vaccinate over a thousand sailors a day. And that allowed us to have such high vaccination rates on the on the base and specifically on the submarines themselves. Because you think about a submarine, a closed, uh, very tight-knit, closed crew, if you get one or two people on there that get COVID and we don't know about it and they get underway, you could take out an entire submarine. So we had lots of restrictions on that. And getting that high vaccination rate as fast as we could is what allowed us to continue that mission. Force protection covers many, many things. We're not going to go into it too deeply, but one of the things I would be remiss in not asking you is, of course, we are all continuing, sadly, to watch the war in Ukraine and obviously Russian forces. What does that mean for the submarine base and the military here in the US? Because President Biden has said no forces will touch foot in Ukraine. But I'm guessing there's still a sense of readiness that has to be sort of like adopted. So sure. A couple of years ago, the Navy leadership, Secretary of Navy Del Toro, as well as his CNO, we started to adopt a great power competition looking at both Russia and China and focusing our efforts at being prepared for those two countries and how we would respond to them, how we would continue to keep America's edge staying in front of those countries. So we've been working towards being prepared for something like this for some time now. You know, we are watching it very closely, but as far as the submarine base, no changes to any of our normally scheduled operations are going on as planned. No changes to any of that here at Subbase New London. And of course, always new submarines coming online as well. Of course, just down the Thames River is Electric Boat, which is one of the builders of of submarines. That must always be exciting because I think you've got the USS Oregon is going to be commissioned. Just talk to us a little bit about that because that must always be exciting when a new vessel comes online. It's very exciting. It's a huge endeavor. It's a huge deal when we get a new submarine and bring it into the force and we have that commissioning ceremony and we welcome it into the force and we break out the commissioning pennant and it is now a ship of the line. Very exciting time here at Subbase. We are lucky to be partnered with Electric Boat just down the river from us. They Not only do they build all the new submarines, they are one of the primary builders of the new submarines, but they also do some repair work on some of our older submarines that are still around. And, you know, the biggest thing right now is they're building the Columbia-class submarine which is the number one mission of the entire Department of Defense is to recapitalize our strategic deterrent force, specifically the SSBM force, and the Columbia is a huge part of that, and, and they are building the very first one down there right now. Just to sort of like segue onto uh, that a little bit more, um, USS Nautilus, of course, is currently having some like repairs, etc. Talk to us a little bit about that, because that's a big thing. You know, she's now missing from her <laughs> pier. She will be back, we can assure people of that. But it's a critical thing, isn't it? to to make sure that Nautilus remains intact and that people can go and visit her. But what does it mean to you? Absolutely, it's a big thing. The Nautilus, the first nuclear submarine ever built, traveled around the world. It tells the story of the submarine force. Not just the nuclear submarine force, the entire submarine force. If you've ever been in in our great museum right outside the base here, that is still open even though the historic ship is not there right now. And that ship just tells the story of the submarine force Incredible story going back prior to World War II, but World War II is really what made the United States Submarine Force and what we did during World War II. And so the ability for us to take the Nautilus and do some repairs on it and do some preservation on it, and it's going to be able to sit at that pier and tell the story of the Submarine Force for another 30 years. And so it's a huge win for us to be able to get that in here get that work done and get her back there and she will be back there later this summer and it's going to be a great time when she comes back we have a huge celebration to welcome her back there 
And we're very excited for when that happens later this summer. I'm pleased to hear that because I was at the event when Nautilus, uh, you know, sailed down the Thames for the first time in probably a very, very long yes. time. And that was a sight to behold. So it'll be great, obviously, to, to welcome Nautilus back. The Thames, of course, is getting busier. And one of the things that will make it uh, much more busier in a few years from now is State Pier in New London, which isn't far from the naval base as Connecticut looks to be part of the offshore wind industry. What challenge? Challenges, you know, do you see that that could potentially create for the Navy? Because although we've got fairly regular traffic with the Cross Island Ferry, there's going to be quite a lot of activity. So what sorts of concerns or challenges do you see happening there? So the obvious concerns that I, I would have is, you know, how much traffic is it going to be in and out of the river? When is it going to be? Is it going to, is it going to impact my ability to operate my submarines? And the answer is no. We have a very good working relationship with all the entities on the Thames River. We have a Thames River working group that we've set up recently, and we have had a meeting right in this very room you're sitting in with the personnel running the pier over there, and we've had that meeting, and we've talked about schedules, and uh, we will have complete visibility on all those schedules, and they will not impact my ability to conduct my mission going in and out of the river with my submarines whenever we need it. One of the other concerns that has been brought up, and I just want to touch on this briefly, is obviously, you know, national security. Uh, Clearly, the submarine base has great security, but... You know, we are looking at potentially seeing more foreign vessels coming in to that port. So who will be stepping up the security there? Will there be a need for the Navy to step the security up, or will that lie with the Coast Guard? Or again, will it, this be a partnership? So it is a partnership. There's already a process in place. Any foreign flagship that comes into any of these ports is vetted through the State Department, and it's all worked through the Coast Guard. And that process is already in place, and that process will continue, and we will be informed of any foreign-flagged vessels that are going to be in there, why they're there, how long they're going to be there, and then we'll take whatever actions are appropriate when they're there. You mentioned it earlier about single sailors and also making barracks and so like and facilities more welcoming and, and whatnot for them. I mean, again, how, how big a challenge is that? Because, as you said as well, there are sailors who are married or who are in partnerships, but there are still a lot of single sailors uh, around. How do you address that, uh, those requirements? We have a multitude of barracks uh, buildings on the space, and that has been one of my primary focus points since I've been here. And it goes back to what you talked about earlier on. I lived in those barracks 30 years ago. I lived in some of these barracks that are still standing today. I lived in those same rooms as that young, unmarried sailor. And so I know what it's like to live in those and, and, and what it's like to live without a car and without family close by. So that has been one of my primary focus areas since I've been here. And this base is very good about taking care of those barracks, getting in there, getting them updating, making sure all the, all the systems are working. And we spend a lot of money and a lot of effort on that, and it is one of my priorities here on the base. And I just want to talk about family housing because, you know, a few years ago there was quite a lot of media focus on sort of military housing, not just here in Connecticut, but obviously across the nation, and it does cost a lot of money. What is the situation with that? Because it was, and I believe continues to be, a public-private partnership with various organisations. Just talk to us about the situation with military housing and where that stands. The government still owns the land, and a private company owns the houses. They manage the properties. They, they're responsible for the upkeep of the properties. A lot of those complaints, they were not all here. And so part of the repercussions from all those concerns a few years ago, Congress mandated a third party come in and do an inspection of every military house 
That is ongo- ongoing right now as we speak. They're about a third of the way through inspecting every single house here on, on uh, our property that uh, we're responsible for. And when they inspect them, they highlight any things that need work right away. And there's the urgent life, health, safety, and then there's the normal things. We put them in a bucket, and then they, we, all that work is getting accomplished and knocking those out as we get them. So I think the company does a very good job over there. We do not have a lot of complaints from our tenants over there. We just had a tenant satisfaction survey that had very good numbers on it. Sure, there is always some property that needs repair, just like in your house and my house, but the team is pretty efficient at getting on it, tracking it, and getting it fixed. And what about the base itself as well? Because as we move through the years, there's more requirements, not just on sort of like the public and municipalities, but also military establishments to become cleaner, greener, meaner, you know, sort of like more environmentally friendly. So talk us through a little bit about that, because again, the sub base is not untouched by that either. I mean, there's things that you do have to do. I have a uh, pretty good environmental department that tracks all that, works very closely with the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection. Everything we do on the base that has anything to do with environmental protection is worked through the Connecticut and the state, and we follow all the state laws, and we're with them. And we're taking some actions on the waterfront. You talk about the uh, environment, potential rising seas, more storms. If you look down on our waterfront, you'll see construction. We're recapitalizing our piers. Some of those piers down there from the World War II time frame. So we're recapitalizing. All the piers are being built now up to the 500-year floodplain. And all of our electrical boxes and all of our support for those submarines are all being built on pedestals and up there so they can withstand any increased storm surges. All of our buildings that are being built anywhere on the waterfront now are built kind of with what I would call a free flood area on the first floor. All the electrical, all the important key things are either on the second floor or can be moved up, and that protects them. So if there is a flooding area, we don't lose the capability as soon as those waters recede. And Subbase has been here a long time, 1915. We have a lot of older buildings on the base. And for all those older buildings, they're being refitted with barriers that will keep the water out from the door. So we're doing a lot of work on the base here in order to prepare for any potential environmental changes and increased in sea levels, any of that here on the waterfront. One of the other things that I know that you're very much uh, into and, and, and want to obviously be able to do more is community engagement. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that, you know, hopefully now you can start to actually bring to fruition now that we're, as you said, hopefully seeing, you know, COVID um, so like disappear into the distance. A lot of our sellers volunteer in the community. A lot of the school districts around here, like ourselves, that come in and do tutoring, doing reading books with the younger kids and all that we weren't able to do for various reasons during COVID. So we're starting to, to do that again. We're really looking forward to Memorial Day coming up and all the ceremonies on town that we can come out and support and show the base and what we do. Also bringing on our leaders on the base, our local leaders, bringing them on the base for different events and tours and showing them what we do on the base. So all that kind of interaction. The Silver Dolphin team, which is our flag and color guard team from the submarine school up the hill, they go out all over southeastern Connecticut and provide service for any, kind, any number of functions that are being had. So those are the type of things that we want to get out and continue to do with the community now that the COVID restrictions are relaxing more. Six months since you took control of Naval Submarine Base in New London, I remember the handover day. 
How much of that do you remember? Because it wasn't a great weather day. <laughs> because you must have been one immensely proud, but you know, can you actually take it all in? Because it's, it's very grand. It's almost like your wedding day where you don't remember much about it because of all the festivities that were going on. But I do remember. So you know, seeing all the people, seeing all the community leaders that came in to show their support for the submarine base, their continued support, I remember that. Captain Todd Moore, the outgoing, did everything he left me, he left me a great facility here, a great institution. I just have to continue it on and continue pushing forward. So I, I do remember that day. Um, it was a great day. The weather was not great, but it stopped raining just in time for the ceremony, and it rained again later, so I'm not sure what that says, but it was a great day when the sun came out for that half an hour when we were doing the ceremony. And there was just great camaraderie there. I mean, talking about Captain Todd Moore and also the other naval brass that were there, you sure. all seemed to get on really well. I mean, I remember watching, there was humour, there was jokes, I mean, but all very respectful. I think that's just a group of like-minded individuals that have a single purpose in mind. That single purpose is to support and defend our Constitution, support this country. And we, we, we work and live for a purpose that's greater than ourselves. And so we all have that same end goal in mind. And so we know that whatever happens, whatever things we run into, roadblocks, we're going to work together as a team to get to that end goal. And, and that is part of what's kept me in the Navy for 36 years. Well, Captain Kenneth M. Curtin, Jr., Commanding Officer, 53rd Commanding Officer of Naval Submarine Base, New London, it's been a very great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hi, Josh. Narielle Wamsley here from Green Valley Tree, LLC. Inviting you to save the date and come along to our open house on Saturday, April 30th from 11 to 2. Come touch a truck and see our yard at 577 Boston Post Road, North Wyndham, and join us for food and fun as we celebrate our growing business. Check out our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com, and we hope to see you there. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story, a true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts. ctnumbers.news. The dangers of fentanyl use and what's being done to combat it was the subject of a community discussion in person and online for four southeastern Connecticut towns recently. Danny Gorman is the director of Waterford Youth and Family Services who organised the event and she explained why they did it. We have seen spikes in overdoses. It was important for us to increase in awareness and to parents especially know what the school's response is and what the police response is, as well as our community leaders. Kathleen Schaefer from Waterford was at the event with her husband and recently lost their son, Jared, to a drug overdose. The school systems in the towns, they have great systems in place. My son was out of high school. He wasn't that age. He was 33. But I'm just frustrated with, honestly, the legal system. I feel that my son was judged and shamed, shamed, so they didn't pursue who sold it to him. Schaefer says there's still too much stigma around people who overdose and the effects drugs have on everyone in society. The drug fentanyl has overtaken heroin use in the past several years. 
Its use was highlighted recently in the January death of a 13-year-old Hartford boy who collapsed in the gymnasium of the Sports and Medical Science Academy from a fentanyl overdose, where police later found 40 bags of the drug and a further 100 bags at the boy's home. Over 2,000 Connecticut students from 80 schools across the state attended the first in-person post-COVID CareerCon event organized by the State of Connecticut's Office of Higher Education and held at Mohegan Sun Arena. Governor Lamont was one of the key speakers and said now was the time for students to take advantage of all the education and career opportunities the state has to offer. Look, you graduate from high school, you can go on to college, you can go get a PhD, you can go do two-year college, or you can go to one of these career academies where in one year you have a skill with a good-paying job that allows you to stay right here in the state of Connecticut and make sure you know you're well taken care of for life. That's what this is all about right now. The event showcased 40 career schools offering training in high-demand careers in the automotive, hospitality, healthcare and manufacturing sectors for students who want to start a career straight out of high school. The Chamber of Commerce of Eastern Connecticut celebrated their 11th annual Military Appreciation Breakfast recently. Also recognised were two local organisations, Dime Bank and UCFS Healthcare, with a Military Community Support Award each for their support of military personnel and their families. Nick Kaplanson is the president and CEO of Dime Bank and said the award wasn't about his organization, but for those that serve. We realize that southeastern Connecticut, as has been mentioned earlier, has one of the highest concentrations of active military members and veterans in the state. That's super important to us as a community organization, and we truly appreciate all the service that everyone has given our community and our country. Jennifer Granger is the president and CEO of UCFS Healthcare and thanked the military for their assistance during the COVID pandemic and how they helped their local communities. When we became one of the few agencies to provide vaccinations, COVID vaccine for the state, again, who was by our side, the National Guard, assisting in every step of the way. So this was just a small way that we could help give back. That's all from this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 